toss that rusty old grill into the lake and set the Barca lounger on fire. This is the Dadward Spiral. I'm back. It's just me, Aaron Pruner. Uh, my co-host, Eddie Doty, is not here because, hey, um, even though this episode's going to be airing after the new year, I decided to take a break from the break and record an episode by myself. But I have a guest. But I'm going to get to my guest in a second. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, tuning in, listening, download, I don't know, streaming, wherever the hell you're finding the show. Thank you for finding it and listening. I've been getting feedback from people that has been uh, awesome to know that uh, people are getting stuff out of this, uh, out of this show and out of these episodes that we are, that we record and out of the topics we explore. But before I get into everything I want to talk about, happy new year. I hope you're well. Uh, my name is Aaron. You could find me on Twitter at Aaron Flux. Um, on Facebook at Aaron W. Pruner, on Instagram at Aaron W. Pruner. I'm really bad at updating the Dadward Spiral Twitter account, but if you want to follow, it's Dadward Spiral on Twitter, Dadward Spiral on Facebook, and we uh, have to thank Dragon Wagon Radio because that's where the show is hosted. And if you have been listening to the show and you find that you need, I don't know, a coffee mug or a t-shirt or COVID mask with the logo of this show that I host and created that was created by my best friend since preschool, who is an art director and graphic designer current living in Hawaii, who has done a lot of work. He's a key art award winner. You can go to Dragon Wagon Radio's website and click the shop tab and find Dadward Spiral and, you know, buy some merch if you want. That'd be, that'd be cool. But you don't have to. Don't feel pressured. Now that I got that out of the way. Um, so Eddie is not here this week because I am recording this on New Year's Eve Eve. And he has three kids and a wife. And they're in the process of having a house built. And they need a break. He needs a break. So it's just me. But joining me today is a friend who I think I've known for 10 years now. Uh, ish maybe i worked on a movie with with him like i don't remember what i did uh it was like an independent thing that was like nine years ago todd farmer is here and todd farmer is a screenwriter writer who um i guess if any of you listening are familiar with horror movies or genre entertainment todd farmer has written uh illustrious works of art like uh jason x or drive angry starring Nicolas Cage and Amber Heard, or My Bloody Valentine that had Jensen Ackles in the starring role, who everyone knows as Dean Winchester from Supernatural. Uh, Todd, thank you for joining me. First episode of the new year. It's my pleasure. No no one's going to see this video, but we both have matching hoods. And my hood... We do, yes. It's like we're ninja, ninja Jedis, but it's too hot in here to do that. So yes, Todd I don't know if you've noticed. I, I'm in the tool shed and the door is open, so it's uh, a little chilly. So I've got my hood up. You are, and look, this is an audio podcast, but I am so like we'll be talking, and I'm I, I see are those dice? Are those dice on the shelf next to you? It's like D and D, D and D dice, yeah, D and D dice right next to some power tools. Do you ever play? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I got. Yeah, I got, of course. I got all my D and D here because you know sometimes you got to zoom D and D. Of course. Um, Todd, 
thank you so much uh, for joining me. I, I told Todd before we started recording that we tend to go deep on the show. And since Eddie's not here, I have no one to keep me in check. So, Todd, if I start rambling, I please I, I ask that you help keep me back, uh, put me back on track. I'm not drinking any alcohol. I've noticed that when I do that, when I record, things get sloppy. I had some hot chocolate before I hit record. So I'm I'm fuzzy and cozy tonight. That's good. That's good. Before I get into anything, um, how are you? How's how's life treated you over the past year? Um, I don't even know what today is. <laughs> well, we're recording on a Wednesday, but I don't know when this go. episode's it's Wednesday. Go. I did not know that. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I've been at my house for a year. When did we do <laughs> March? Uh, yeah. I did go, I did meet my lover in, uh, in uh, Mexico about three weeks ago for a scout. And we were very careful. It was interesting. Everyone there was wearing masks and then I come back home and everyone is not wearing masks. So what are you, what are you going to do? But uh, be mad, be yeah. annoyed. I took my daughter to the park today and the amount of parents there without masks on is just, I saw a woman pushing a kid on the swing. She was holding a mask in her hand. So I'm like, well, it's good to know it was on your mind, but thanks for, but yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time indoors over the past year. And it's one of those things where a lot of people I know are like, writing scripts and writing books and being productive. And I'm like, fuck, you know, if I can get through the day without, without having an emotional outburst, I think it's a good day, yeah. you know? Um, so you are a writer and I, I want to start by asking you when you knew that that was what you, you were meant to do. When uh, was that moment? I mean, it was early. I was the kid around the campfire telling the ghost stories and I liked it. And I liked the reactions. Um, I knew I thought I was in, I was in Kentucky. So in Kentucky, there's no, there's no being in a movie, being a writer of a movie. It's not even something that's conceivable. It's not, it's not in the vocabulary. It's not, it's not something that could ever happen. So I did know that there were writers and novelists from all over the world and being in rural areas and big cities. And so I thought I would be a novelist, but I found that I didn't actually have the patience once I had figured the story out to actually sit down and write 400 pages. I mean, I was young. And so I saw a Quentin Tarantino book, which had true romance and reservoir dogs. I have that book. It's great. It's, it was great. And I, I bought it. It was in the used bin and I bought it for next to nothing. And I read Reservoir Dogs and I was just blown away at the, at the format at how, and I thought, I mean, I can, this is was a hundred and something pages. I, I can, I can do that. I can stay focused long enough to do that. And that's what did it. And so then I started reaching out to, I had a friend of a friend who knew Dean Laurie, who had written most currently he had done major pain with Damon Wayans, but he okay. had done Jason goes to hell. And so, you know, long story short, that's how I ended up writing Jason X because through Dean's contact with Sean Cunningham. So, so that's what, what was that? Well, what was that point? Did you, did you find that Tarantino book and think this is what I wanted to do and then come to LA? I was in Texas when I found the Tarantino book. Um, I had been there for maybe six months 
and um, and then I uh, friend of a, I wrote a screenplay, had no idea what I was doing, and <laughs> uh, I sent it. To this was this was back before like Final Draft really uh, structured yeah. out scripts, right? I wrote, it, I wrote it in Word. Scriptware uh, was it Scriptware. Yeah, Scriptware was the one we started with. Scriptware. Do you remember Scriptware? No. Scriptware was before um, was before Final Draft. And like when you had problems, you would call the, the self-help number and it would be some dude in his garage. It was always <laughs> a thing. Done. And uh, so like all of my early scripts are on Scriptware. Jason X, everything that I, when I first started is on Scriptware. So the problem is it does not exist anymore. So you can't access those. And about maybe five years ago, I keep trying to think who it was that I reached out to. Somebody actually had it on their computer and I sent them a ton of scripts and they put them all into text files. So now I have all of those old things, but they're in text files. So anyway, wow. anyway that was, um, it would have been 94 or five when this okay. was. And uh, my mom, it was 94. My mom died in 94. I met a girl shortly after we moved to Texas shortly after that. So it was 94. And then um, I talked to Dean Laurie because I went to college with a guy who went to high school with Dean. And, um, and I reached out to the girl. I, I reached out to somebody who knew Dean and then she gave, she read my screen, the first screenplay I ever wrote. She sent it to Dean. Dean called me up having read it finally. And he said, I read, I threw it in the trash after 40 pages. Said, <laughs> you don't have any idea how to, how to structure a screenplay, but he said, you have some great ideas. He said, I can't teach you great ideas, but I can teach you structure. And that's how it started. And that wow. was, that was 95. And then I think late 95 and in 96, he said, you need to, you need to move out here. If you want to do this, you need to move out to LA. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's inspiring. I mean, but, but 95, I remember 95, I was out of high school by then. 95 was when I was on VR troopers and, uh, it was a different world. Just the idea of what were you born here? Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah, were always I'm, I'm a LA native and early on my mom tried to get me into acting and I didn't want to do it. And, you know, professionally, cause I, you know, I did theater in, in elementary school. I was Tom Sawyer. I was Scrooge multiple times. Um, and, but I also knew at a very early age that I enjoyed storytelling and writing. And it wasn't though until I was 14 years old and my English class uh, assigned us just just to write a story, any genre, whatever. And I it was just around the time that I really started discovering Stephen King and Clive Barker. And I was obsessed with Hellraiser and Pinhead. And I wrote a short story at the, I think I was 13 or 14. I wrote a short story called The Feast. And it was about a prostitute who was chased into an abandoned rickety old house. And was uh, confronted by uh, a, a killer who wanted to rape and murder her. And he did that and then ate her, ate her body. And her vengeance played out in that she manifested 
her energy from inside of his body and crawled out of him. And I read it. <laughs> I was 13, 14 years old. I read it in front of my class and I made kids cry. <laughs> and I realized at that moment that words have power and that if you, if you implement them in a specific way, you can incite <laughs> these types of really strong reactions. And that's what I was uh, drawn to doing for the longest time before I ended up getting into acting. That's why I wanted to know when that moment was for you. I remember when I got my first typewriter and that was like a religious experience for me, just being able to sit there. I say typewriter cause I'm old uh, being able to sit there with a brother typewriter and just, you know uh, the clacking of the keys, but um I'm going off on a tangent again. Oh, you are. Uh, That's a good thing. I mean, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I did the same thing. That was the journey that, but my journey was, was weird because I grew up in a very religious background, a very, I, I grew up in an all white County. There were three religions, church of Christ, Baptist, uh, Methodist. That's it. There's no Chinese food. There's no, it was, it was white. It was extremely white. We all used the N word and half the time we didn't even know it was in a bad, that the meaning was bad, if that makes sense. Wow. Like it's just, yeah. we just used it. It was just, it was just common. And um, I got married right out of college and that only lasted three years. And then life went into just a complete tailspin because in my religion, you couldn't get divorced unless there was adultery and there wasn't. And so I wasn't allowed to remarry him. It was a whole, that's a different life. It's almost looking back on that. It's like a story that I read. It doesn't feel like it's my life because my life has changed so drastically. Yeah. And it was shortly, it was shortly after that, that my mom, my mom killed herself, which, you know, oh, anyone God, I'm sorry. Goes, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a part of the life experience. No, it's not a great thing, but I feel I am a better writer because of all the crap that I've gone through. And that's just one of the pieces of crap that I went through. And, um, but after that, that spins you in a completely different direction. And so yeah. I, met, I met a girl and I clearly at that point, having gone through a divorce and gone through uh, my mom's death, I clearly had abandonment issues. I met a girl who she too had issues and we became that codependent relationship that, that uh, resulted in a, in a beautiful daughter <laughs> eventually <laughs> many years later. But um and it was just weird the journeys that we take to get to right. the things that we get. I uh man, you know, before I haven't even gotten to any of the things I wanted to talk to you about yet, but there is this idea of you know, I I found some pictures of me from 20 years ago. And looking at those pictures, I I know that me existed. I know that life existed. I know I did those things and knew those people. Yeah. I don't look anything like that guy anymore. And I don't think like him either. And it's, it's, there are things I still like, it, you know, my aesthetic, my tastes still similar, but mm -hmm. it's really strange that, that especially now as a dad, looking back on that, I never thought I'd be where I am. It feels like a dream, <laughs> you know, or, or like a, a movie I once watched that I really connected to that now feels just like something that, that, that had an impact on my life at a very specific time. Like it doesn't feel like it really happened. And so I understand what you're saying. Cause I've gone through this whole huge change, which helped a lot when I went into therapy 
because I was in a lot of codependent relationships myself. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, you know, I didn't have a dad there, didn't have a grandfather. There was a big accident that that caused huge turmoil in my family that I just grew up in thinking was normal because I had nothing to reference. I, I thought all kids were raised by their grandmother and their mom, like, cause that's what I had. Right. And, uh, I thought all kids had their grandmother and mom constantly fighting and crying and yelling at each other because that's what I had until I realized much later there was a big accident and a death and resentment and all this pent up stuff because, Therapy wasn't a thing, really, that people did in the 70s. And my grandmother was of the generation that didn't talk about problems. And so, like, you know, once I started exhibiting those certain behaviors that were reflective of all of that that I grew up in, realizing that it was directly connected to the stuff my mother was not really able to deal with and how that manifested itself in her I got therapy because, you know, (laughs) you can only be in so many destructive relationships one after the other, after the other, after the other, until you start realizing maybe it's also me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You know, (laughs) and it took a lot for me to get there. And then after I got into therapy, I met my, I met my wife and my life is completely different than it was before that. Um, And so I understand. I understand what you mean. And I don't know, I, you know, these, these are, you're right. These types of traumatic experiences are the things that flavor our perspective, especially if we're in a creative uh, industry, you know, Mm -hmm. tell stories that, and try to connect with an audience on a, on a more, on a surface level, but also on a deeper level. I, I understand. That's why I love writing. That's why I love acting. That's why I don't know. That's why I talk a lot on Twitter when I have the time to do it. Um, so you mentioned your daughter and that's, I have, I, I never told you this, but you, you know, over the past 10 years, I have, I have paid attention when you have posted stuff on social media and photos with you spending time with your daughter, even before I became a dad, because I don't see that a lot. And you <laughs> feel like a more spiritual stone cold Steve Austin. That's how I view you, Todd. Uh, I, I just saw Stone Cold Steve Austin on an episode of Hot Ones. And I was like, what is it about that man that reminds me of Todd Farmer? Um, <laughs> you, you feel like a, a more um, emotionally connected to the world version of Stone Cold with arms that aren't the size of dump trucks. And uh, but but, you know, I and I said this in a previous episode, I never really felt like a man. You know, growing up, I was a mama's boy because that was just the world, the 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 environment I grew up in. So I got beat up a lot. I got picked on a lot. And I didn't really come into my own sense of agency until much later uh, in my life. And that that sort of translates itself into a lack of confidence in yourself and in the way that you interact with the world and women. Like I didn't have any dates in high school. My mm. first kiss, I was 19 out of, out of school entirely. Cause I was afraid of girls. I was yeah. afraid of connecting and, and interacting with women because my mom at a very early age told me to avoid confrontation. Cause she didn't want me to be violent like my dad. And I translated that as, well, I can't, 
I don't know how to interact with people. And right. so like, it took a long time for me to get to where I am now. Um, and, and get over that whole idea of dads are just macho, uh, muscular sports playing, fishing, uh, guys who really understand how to utilize the tools that I am seeing all throughout your shed, you know, stuff sure. like that. I, I, I didn't know how to operate any sort of power tools until my early thirties. Like I avoided I this stuff at all. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just saying, right. You're the spiritual version of Stone Cold <laughs> Steve Austin. Um, you know, but what I'm getting at is I, I would look, I would see your posts online and, you sharing these moments that you would have with your daughter. And it seems so basic to say this, but it gave me this sense of, oh, there are, you can be like this manly guy, but also have a sensitivity and an understanding and just a connection with, you know, a kid and be a father in that sort of type of relationship dynamic that I, that was completely foreign to me. And yeah. so, it's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on because you've gone through what I'm going through right now. Yeah. And um, I just uh, want to thank you for putting that out there for me to see. You're very, uh, you're very welcome. And I do not, uh, I, I like you, I didn't know this about you, but I did not want to be a father. I, um, it was a situation where I had said to Melanie at the time, I said, you know, I, this is a deal breaker. I do not want to, I don't want to have kids ever. Uh, my parents fought. Uh, they didn't, it wasn't physical fighting. I mean, there was physical elements to it. I don't, they never hit each other. Uh, my dad would break things and, uh, and they yelled all the time. It was just, it felt like it was all the time. I wrote a, um, in the fifth grade, we had to write essays and I wrote what Christmas means to me. And my essay was basically, I love Christmas because my parents don't fight. And I won and mom and dad were horribly, horribly embarrassed that I would, oh that I would God, out yeah. this. And, uh, but I got a $50 savings bond. So oh. I lost it years ago, but I'm sure it's worth $62 now somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I didn't want to have kids. And so Mel and I, we, and we, we are, we're, uh, we communicate better now than we ever have, but there were some rough times in the beginning. There were lots of fights, lots of back and forth, lots of breakups and getting back together and all that. And I, and she had actually moved to Pacific Grove, California. She'd moved five hours North and I was in thousand Oaks at the time and we'd split up. We started dating other people and then we ran into each other at Comic-Con uh, six months later and we got back together and, uh, and I ended up moving from Thousand Oaks to Pacific Grove, still driving back and forth doing LA business, which is not easy. And we were fighting all the time and it was not going to work. We were going to separate probably for good, never see each other again. And she got pregnant. Oh, wow. And she told me, and, and I mean, the moment she told me, I said, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to have it. And so I dropped on my knees and kissed her belly and said, this is, I'm going to be the best dad I can be. Yeah. It's, it's man that that's, 
it's it seems so like when I talk to certain people who are like, I've always wanted to be a father when they say that to me, I'm like, that is so interesting. <laughs> like, I can't wrap my head around that yeah. just because of just the years of conditioning that the yeah. that I have been placed into that situation. When my wife came in and told me she was pregnant, I remember going, oh, oh OK, I'm here to so support you however I can. Huh? It was not planned. I wasn't planning anything, but I feel like she had had a definite plan in mind. And um, all those fears, all, all like, I swear, that's why this show is called the dad word spiral, because I was spiraling out of control. It, it was just so much, so much yeah. reflecting on my childhood, so much worries about behavior translating into abusive uh, parenting to my daughter. You know, there was a, there was a thing that I experienced as a child and it made me one worried that I'd abuse my kid, like all these things, because you hear about victims of abuse uh, yeah. repeating that behavior. And, and it, I think it's because I'm so aware yeah. that I'm so aware of what not to be and wanting to be what I never had that that hasn't even been an issue, but for yeah. the longest time it was all these worries and fears. And then my wife had four days of labor and that was a whole nutty experience unto itself. But the, the moment they put my daughter in my hands, I was like, okay, uh, like it all was just like, fuck, I have to take care of this. Now I got to take care of this little person. However I can. And it suddenly put me into this, this, this gear I was familiar with because I, took care of my grandmother when she, when her health started fading and I have been taking care of my mother. And so it's like, it was familiar, but not familiar at the same time, that feeling of, of, okay, this is, this is who I am now. Um, I, I, I do want to talk to you about something before I talk to you about another thing. Uh, I know you from the horror community. Mm -hmm. We had Drew McQueenie on a few episodes ago talking about, the relationship he has with his kids in reference to movie education. And I brought up horror movies because not only would I like to educate my daughter or share these experiences with her when she is old enough, my, <laughs> my emotional reaction to horror movies have changed a bit since becoming a dad. And I don't even know if that makes sense to you. There are certain things that I was able to see on screen, no problem, before having a daughter. Now, there are certain things on screen where, like, I saw the new Pet Cemetery, and suddenly, after years of thinking the dad made the stupidest decision, suddenly I'm relating to everything he's doing, thinking I would do exactly the same. I know it's not smart, <laughs> like, you know. Um, but then also, I was exposed to horror at a very young age when I was six years old. I saw The Exorcist and Poltergeist because my cousin, who was my babysitter at the time, made me. And I feel like it was super traumatizing, but also introduced me to, um, I don't know, this world I never thought, this world of entertainment and this type of storytelling where you go through some really dark shit, but then come out of it on the other side, where it, it kind of gave me a little bit of a backbone. Um I, I don't know if that even makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and I've had these conversations with my wife about, you know, when do you think we can watch something like a nightmare before Christmas or, or 
uh, um, monster squad or something that is obviously she would have to be older. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what that has been like for you, because the last time I saw you was at a screening of Freddie versus Jason. Your daughter was there and she seemed I, I, I noticed how excited she was to be there and how into the movie she was. And I'm wondering how she got to that point. What was your relationship with her within this realm of what you do for a living? Well, Izzy, I mean, Izzy, and I've talked about this publicly. It's not a secret. She's a high functioning autistic child. And uh, she, we found out while Mel and I were, when I went to shoot Drive Angry, we had we had separated. We had separated right after My Bloody Valentine. In fact, I had I was working and we got in an argument and she said, you know what, go sleep in your office. And I slept in my office for eight months. So I was prepared for the car. But uh, as I'm <laughs> there and, uh, you know, it, it was difficult because Izzy's coming to the office with me and, and then at night she wants to go home. And so, you know, I had a, I had a couch that pulled out and so we could, you know, we could stay there, but I would take her home at night after a while, she ended up staying there, but, um, she was never like, she crawled late. She talked late. She walked late. And my, um, my neighbor was a special educations teacher and he caught me one day outside. She was maybe two. And he said, you know, you should, he just told me. He he's not supposed to. Apparently, there's some legalities that you're not supposed to tell a parent because a parent will have the the a parent would reject it. So you say, go have your child's hearing checked, and then the pediatrician will then realize your child is autistic and tell you. And so, but he told me, and so when I was at Mel went and had her checked out because I had to go do drive angry, and uh, and she was autistic. Now you wouldn't really know it now unless you knew what autism was. She used to she used to do this. They called it stimming. She'd get excited and she'd flap. So she was at school and kids would make fun of her because she's doing this when she gets excited. She's controlled that. She's she's from the very early stages. She watched everything. You know, Baby Einstein. Did, is it still around? I think so. Baby Einstein was this. You know, it would play music in the background and it was Einstein. Uh, it was Mozart music. And, but she would watch that and she would watch, she watched Monsters Inc. probably a thousand times. Mm. And, uh, but she would watch all of those shows. It wasn't, uh, I don't think Nightmare Before Christmas was ever an issue. I don't think we ever delayed her watching that. But when it came to actual movies, relatively early on, she showed no interest. Like even today, she doesn't, she shows no interest. She'll, she went to see the last Star Wars movie with me, but, but she did that for me. She didn't do it because she <laughs> didn't care at all. Um, when she watches a movie, she tends to like it. Um, like she liked Wonder Woman. Uh, she hasn't seen the current one. She's liked the last Wonder Woman. Um, she loves She-Ra. I don't know what that is. I guess it's an animated sh- series. Yeah, it's a new animated series on Netflix that uh, you're familiar with He-Man, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, She-Ra is a character from the He-Man okay. cartoons. Okay. Yes, I didn't. I did not realize that, but yes, I know who She-Ra is. I've not. I didn't know about the show. Oh, I have Netflix, but I didn't know about it's a, it. So it's a good show. But she doesn't. It hasn't been an issue because she she does a lot of art and she does a lot of animations, even at fourteen. And uh, she's very. Her style is very dark. Uh, her stuff is uh, a lot of parents would find very disturbing. Um, 
but she doesn't, I mean, she grew up with my severed head on the mantle. It's so right. I mean, yeah. Easy for her to go in that direction, but she doesn't really, it's not that she doesn't like horror movies. She just doesn't really like movies. It's just not her thing. It's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that about your daughter and that's, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that. Um, I just, I, you know, I, the reason I brought that up is because being who I am and the friends that I have, I have heard so many times, especially from my best friend who introduced me to horror and, and, and pretty much everything in my life. Um, honestly, I wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. He even said, you know, when are you going to show her this? When are you going to show her that? And it's like, I'm not just going to sit her down and put on Hellraiser. Like that's, that's not something I am going to do to my daughter unless if she expresses interest and she's old enough for me to say, okay, you're old enough to see a person have their skin ripped off of their entire body, you know? Um, And being that you are in this position further along in, in parenthood than I am, I just wanted to get that, that, that your perspective on that, you know, especially since you work in horror films. I mean, I, I, I guess I dodged the bullet because she just, it, she shows no real interest. I, yeah. uh, I mean, I never made a point of sitting her down to watch any of my movies at all. Uh, it wasn't until maybe last year for summer. Um, she mentioned it. And so just because some of her friends had seen my movies. Mm. So I think we sat down and watched, I think we watched most of them over the course of the summer. I know we watched Jason X. I don't know that we watched Bloody Valentine, but we we watched Drive Angry. I did this animated thing called Heavenly Sword, which we did. We watched. So I mean, she watched most of the stuff then, but I mean, for the most part, she just doesn't go out seeking movies. She doesn't. It's just not her thing. She'd rather that's draw interesting. And listen to music. I like that. That that's cool. Um, you mentioned the cars, so I want to just let's just get into it. And I read your article again today. You wrote a thing for Birth Movies Death like five years ago, and I remember when it went up and everyone was talking about it. Uh, to give some context here, we both work in a creative industry that has its highs and lows, and I have experienced personally a lot of highs and lows over the past four years, especially now that I am freelance. And there's extra concern of, can I not only support myself, but also my wife and my daughter keep a roof over our head and not just barely get by, but get by to the point of paying off my debt and moving into a house so that my daughter doesn't grow up in a similar apartment situation that I grew up in. That's been on my mind a lot, especially this past year. When, you know, the entertainment industry shut down, 80% of my work went away. And um, if it wasn't for unemployment, uh, I mean, shit would have been fucked. And I think about that a lot. Over the past few months, I would drive, you know, through the city and I, I have noticed more homeless people underneath the freeway overpass near my house uh, and more furniture on the sidewalk outside of all different types of buildings in nice neighborhoods in bad neighborhoods. And uh, there's this talk of an eviction crisis because of the pandemic. And I am constantly put in this position where I'm thinking of, okay, I grew up in government subsidized housing where I was next to a crack house that got invaded a lot, raided a lot by, uh, by SWAT teams. I 
saw my first drive-by shooting when I was 13 years old. I grew up around in the, in the territory that was disputed by two different gangs. And because I was one of the only white kids in the area, I got fucked with a lot. Right. I don't live far from that area. That area has been gentrified, but I, I live far enough. I'm removed enough from that in a better situation, but it's always on my mind that I came from a very, I don't want to say dire place, but I, I came from a place that I don't want to go back to. And I'm very grateful of where I am, but there's also shame that I have connected to my past and to how I grew up. And so I'm constantly putting myself in this, in this position of being grateful as opposed to being overcome by shame and being grateful for what I have and not assigning myself worth to the fact that I haven't booked an acting job or I haven't gotten a, a writing job recently, or, you know, you're only as good as the last thing you did. I, I used to hear that all the time when I was working on camera mm. and rereading your article, you lived in your car for a while. Mm. And I don't know how long that was or what exactly it was that was the catalyst to put you in that position. You're not the first person that I know who has gone through something like that. And your story has been on my mind a lot over the past year because I know you and because you've got you, you, you hit a place in your life that was, a I don't know if you want to say that was rock bottom, but that, that seems like a trying position to be in to still keep your eye on the prize and move forward and, and focus on, you know, the fact that it's not always going to be this. And I'm wondering if you can just, First off, walk me through how that happened and how you've been able to, or if you've been able to reconcile, I don't know if you've, if you experienced shame from, from what I was just talking about, about, you know, self-worth and creatively speaking, and then being in a position where you no longer have a roof over your head and have to sleep in your car and reconcile who, where you were in your life at that point to where you are now, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you'd, we'd have to go back to probably, we'd have to go back to drive angry because after drive angry, um, before that Mel and I had separated and I ended up, uh, renting a house right up the street from where they were. So they were in an apartment. Um, uh, I was in a house and that's Los Angeles rent. So it's, it's a, yeah. Decent money. And so even though um, uh, Patrick and I had done Halloween 3D, which was a movie that never got made, but we got paid to write the script. And it was it was the Weinsteins and we got paid, you know, decent money for it. And then Drive Angry came out, which was okay money. Uh, nobody was really buying specs at the time. It was a good script. Uh, a lot of people were interested, just no one was offering a lot of money. But we got paid for that. And so, you know, two big, two jobs together, that's pretty good money. But, uh, you know, when you're paying two rents and you're, you're maintaining two households, that money starts to dwindle down. It's always been one of those things where I always got one good job a year and that job sort of paid for the year, sometimes less than a year, just depending on what the job was. And so uh, I was living up the street and Mel had come to me and said money was getting tighter. And she came to me and said, uh, I want to move back to Memphis to be around my family. 
and my initial, and, and by the way, when I said I didn't want to be a father, I really didn't, but I thought I was a good one. I took her to work with me. She had her own office right next to my office where she had all of her stuff and her toys. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it was fantastic. And I didn't just take her. I would put her in the burley on my bike and we would ride along the ocean for a whole two miles and no, maybe three miles just to get to the office. It was never. And sometimes we'd stop and just run around the ocean. I mean, it was net. It was. And it wasn't like I decided to embrace being a father. It's just like, I loved it. I mean, I, I loved every moment of it. And, you know, I knew, you know, at this point I knew she was autistic and it didn't, didn't matter to me. It wasn't like, I was like, this is great. All the things that autistic kids can do that normal kids can't <laughs> like she's a Jedi. She can do things that other kids can't. It was great. But, um, that all changed. It went from, she was with me every single day to Mel saying, I want to move to Memphis to be around my family. And her reasoning was, I don't have any friends here. I don't have a life here. You have Hollywood. You have, when you go off and do a movie, you're gone for three months. And I'm just here by myself with Izzy. And she said, if I go back there, you know, I'll be around your brother and your sister and your family's back there. My family's back there. And I can, you know, I'll live with my mom until we find a place of our own and all these things. And, and I said, I, you know, I, I wanted her to be happy. And so I said, yes. And the idea was I would fly back and forth twice a month, more than that, when, when money allowed and uh, stay with them. And I did, there was an extra bedroom where I would stay. And uh, the problem was, um, you know, we were running out of money and I started dating someone else. And when Melanie found out I started dating someone else, even though we were separated in the back of her mind, she always thought we'd get back together. And so that was World War III because I was dating somebody else. All couples go through that. It's just a part of the life experience. But uh, that and uh, the girl I was dating and Mel, we started going through the divorce procedures. It was difficult to say the least. She was, she was angry and she was saying, because you are dating someone else, you have gone outside of the marriage. And so I'm going to file for divorce in Tennessee and I'm going to take your child from you. And so the next morning I went and filed for divorce here. And, uh, I don't blame her. I understand she wanted us to get back together. I get it. Um, I filed for divorce here because here it doesn't matter. It's just 50, 50, you split, you go your separate ways. And so we're going through that and I'm running out of money and I was living with the girlfriend and this war was too much for her. And so we went our separate ways and I found myself simply not having enough money to, cause I was sending money home or I say home, I was sending money to Memphis. I was paying my bills. I just didn't have enough money left over to get a place of my own. I didn't have enough money to share with somebody who had a place. Like I just didn't have enough money left over after the bills. And so I stayed with, uh, Patrick had, Patrick had left to go. Patrick and I had been partners forever, but he had just gotten the opportunity of a lifetime. He was prepping for, terminator and so i didn't want to 
I didn't want to burden that's, any of them. Uh, that's Patrick Lucier. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah. Lucier. Yeah. I didn't want to burden anyone. I didn't want to burden him. Like, I just, I didn't want anyone to know. It was embarrassing for starters. And so I was staying with uh, Tyler and Renee, Tyler Maine and, and yeah. uh, his wife Renee. And, um, but they were up in Santa Clarita and I was staying with them just because we were friends. Like I would drive up on the weekends and hang out with them. They didn't know I was sleeping in my car. When they found out they were livid, they were like, come stay, you're staying here. And I was like, I can't, I, I appreciate it. I really do. But I have a lease and you guys are 50 miles from where I work. Cause I had started working at Toyota cause I didn't have any money. So I was doing, um, I know I'm getting the chronological order of this story all out, but no, it's uh, fine. I, uh, I had, I'd started working at Toyota and so I wasn't making a lot of money. And so, and then eventually I just, I was sleeping in the car behind Toyota because I didn't have money to do anything else. I never thought of it as necessarily a bad thing. It just, it was temporary for me. It's just, it's just for right now. Cause with this business, money always comes in eventually. Like it always did. Anytime I would hit hard times in the past 10 years, a job would pop up and I would suddenly I'm, I'm working again. And suddenly the coffers are refilled and I'm paying off bills and everything's fine. It's just that didn't happen. And so I kept thinking that's going to happen any moment and uh, it didn't. And so, you know, I, I figured out how to do it. I figured out how to, how to sleep in your car. And, and I was pretty good at it. You know, Prius is more spacious than you would think. I have one. I am very aware (laughs) And uh, I like sleeping flat, so you know you can't do that in a Prius. So that's that's a no. shame. So, but I I figured out how to do it, and uh, the only people who knew were Tyler and Renee. I think Derek probably knew as well. Yeah, Derek knew because he gave me a key. He gave Derek me a key. Mears. Derek Mears and said, "Come, you, know, you have the key. Come." This was before he got married. And, was uh, this around the time that? Because uh, I did. 24. I remember I came up. 2014. Okay. It was 2011. I, I, I was on the set of a movie with you and Derek and Tyler, and I don't remember what the name of that movie was. Compound Fracture. Was that too? Yes. It was Compound Fracture. I was living with my wife at that point, even though we were still dating. And so that was 2010 or 2011. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, at that point, I was still living in Pacific Grove. So in 2012, Melanie moved to Memphis. I moved to uh, Simi Valley and stayed with a friend. And then I ended up moving out from the friend and, and moving in with the, the girlfriend for a while. Got and it. Then, yeah. I think it was the end of 2013, the beginning of two, 2014, when even though I was still technically there, we would get in a fight and I would just go sleep in the car. So it wasn't something new. It was something that I had, you know, when we would fight and what, what I ended up using that all the time, because in, in LA and Ventura County, you can't sleep in your car. This is against the law. No. Right. And so, uh, especially when it's cold, like it is now, if you sleep in your car, the windows are going to fog up and, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, you'll hear a, you know, a flashlight's going to tap on your glass and uh, I never got arrested, but they were always like, you got to, you got to, what do you, what do you do? First, they were, what are you doing? Uh, my girlfriend and I got in a fight, even though I'd been sleeping there for six months. <laughs> and so that was always the thing I said. And, uh, and so they were like, well, you can't, you gotta, you gotta move on. Go make up with her because you can't sleep here. Huh. Go make up with her. Right. 
And so, um, so I would just go find somewhere else on the street to sleep. And, um, it, um, it was fine. I mean, it, it was, I had a $10, a $10 a month, uh, uh, gym membership, which really yeah. was a lifesaver because I, would I was going to, I was going to bring that up. The, I, you talked about it in the article and that, I mean, if you didn't have that, the idea of showers and just, you know, a place to, I mean, the thing to, is, I, I was, I was still making money. I mean, I was making, I think I was making 12 bucks an hour at Toyota and I was, and on occasion I would have, um, residuals show up. And I mean, they were, I mean, I, I understand why writers would fight for more residuals because many times in my career, I lived off of residuals. I hadn't, yeah. you know, that was all the money I had coming in. And, um, you know, and they, they, they don't, the residual money is not as big as it used to be. I mean, I remember no. when the first Jason X residual was, was it, I, I get it confused, either 80 grand or a hundred and something, but Ooh. I didn't even know residuals existed. Like I didn't even know it was a thing. I just got this letter, a green envelope opened it, didn't think anything about it. And there's a check for a hundred and something thousand that changed everything that paid yeah. off school that paid off debts that, that, that was everything didn't even know it was coming. No one, there was no, I mean, there was internet, but it was all very brand new. It wasn't something that I just didn't know about it. Yeah. So, so that, oh man, I, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine being put in that position. And I know there are a lot of people, this unpacks a lot of things for me. So first off, there is this disconnect. I think that exists between how people view Hollywood who are outside of Hollywood mm -hmm. and then those who are actually in this ecosystem, there's either those who are working all the time or those who are doing the whole feast or famine thing. Yeah. And I remember, what was it a few years ago where that actor uh, from the Cosby show, there was a picture of him working at Trader Joe's yeah, and there was yeah. this big uproar about it like actors don't take jobs outside of acting and you know there there's this element this this perspective of looking down on taking jobs that i guess we consider essential workers at this point given you know what we're living in and i'm wondering where you were at did you view it that way in, in taking the job at Toyota? Like, like well, I, I, mean, I took the, I took the job at Toyota because the girl that I was dating at the time uh, knew people there and she had worked, she worked there. And so she, she basically got me the job there. And, and I, I mean, I appreciated the job and I felt like I was good at the job. I, I took it seriously and I was good at it. Um, and they knew I would get my work done. There was work we had to do. And once I got that work done, they knew I was writing. I mean, I told them and they were fine with it. Um, there was, there were moments of being embarrassed. Um, um, I, I mean, I got, there's no, no secret. He doesn't, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it now. I was very embarrassed at the time. I don't know if you know the name, Derek Douchey. Derek worked for revolution studios. He was a Todd no. Garner's, executive and uh when i did when i went in to do messengers which or when i went in to do scarecrow which later became the messengers which this with the sparkly vampire girl before she was a sparkly vampire um <laughs> that was um but derek got his car 
maintenanced, serviced at Toyota. And every oh, now yeah. and then I would get the, cause that's what I did. I called and Derek, sometimes Derek's paper, you know, where he'd come in with his Prius. <laughs> I don't know if I should be telling people he had his Prius, but he did, or he did then. And, um, I, so I, I didn't want to call him. Yeah. I didn't want to say, hey, this is the guy that you hired to write this movie at Toyota. Yeah. So I, would, I would hand it off I, to the other guy and he always happily did it for me. I never called Todd, I, I, I get it, man. I, I straight out of high school first, uh, first week after high school, like I didn't go to college. I booked a job on a TV show called VR Troopers. And because Power Rangers was such a big thing, we all thought this was the next big thing. And I was setting myself up like this is what I'm going to be big. I didn't realize that $100 a week was bad. I got paid $100 a week because it was non-union. And I worked one episode a week and my day rate was $100, which meant I could work 14 hours, do my own stunts, I was 18 years old for a week and they exploited the fuck out of me. You know, I thought I had made it. And season two, I renegotiated, not just for an opening credit. Percy got paid $250 a day and I got guaranteed two days of work a week. So then I was like, I really made it. Then the show got canceled. And, you know, something like six years later, I was working at Starbucks and in comes Shuki Levy, who was Haim Saban's right-hand man, who was the executive producer of VR Troopers. And he ordered coffee from me. And he had no idea who the fuck I was. And I even said, Shuki, remember me? I was, uh, you know, it was like my self-worth went down the toilet. Like, you know, this high point in my life, which was also in retrospect, kind of a low point in my life. This, you know, working on that show, like it's, I didn't want to see him because it was like, I was on a TV show. And not only that, he got our star pregnant and they got married and had a kid. And like, so she was there too. And I was like, remember when we had that kissing scene and then you went on to win a daytime Emmy award. And I went on to serve coffee to people in studio city. (laughs) Like it was just such this, this uh, fucking so I understand I I come I get it and that's what I meant by by shame and having this idea of self worth like I just watched Soul on Disney Plus last night I don't know if you've yeah, uh, heard of the new movie my God man like that cut right into my soul for lack of better uh, words um okay but a- anyways I feel that we have this perspective in, you know, especially if you're in a creative industry of, I, I'm not going to go work customer service and that's beneath me. But I think there's a newfound respect for the quote unquote essential workers, especially now mm-hmm. uh, with everything that's going on. And um, I'm, I think you've already answered my question about what your view of that was going from God, a hundred thousand dollar residual to like, you know, working, you know, I I'm assuming you were at the service desk at Toyota. No, there were, uh, what we would do is we would, there were two of us and we would call, uh, after someone came in and got their, their service done, we would then call and say, Hey, how did, how did it go? The main reason oh, we call was to try to get them to fill out a survey and give us a 10 out of 10. Cause then everybody got bonuses. Yeah. Yeah. And I took that seriously because, you know, the guys like to get in their bonuses. And so I would, right. I would call everybody and 
and do my best to, if they had a problem, you know, fix it. And nobody knew who I was. I mean, there's a part there, there's there's a part in your article where you talk about going to a, a I think an industry party or a party at a friend's house and everyone there yeah. is working in Hollywood and talking about what projects they're doing and and you talk about how that moment broke you and and that was the moment where you 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 found yourself crying uh, and really thinking about where you were in your life what. I think it was the next paragraph where you you started assessing where you used to come from creatively to where you were at that point. And then you talk about how you ended up moving to be closer to your daughter and that helped you turn a corner with your writing. And I'm curious about that because I my energy just my day-to-day energy has changed since becoming a dad. And I see the world differently when I'm around my daughter. I'm a much easier, I think much easy, more easygoing person. Maybe I'm more patient and I'm wondering what it is about being closer to your daughter that helped you uh, get out of that funk. It was, it was, I think it goes back to me not wanting to be a father because I didn't want to be a father because of all this baggage that had nothing to do with me being a good father. My dad has challenges when it comes to being a father. There are things that he was, our house was the place where all the kids hung out, you know, my girlfriend and all of her friends and everybody was always at our house. That's where everybody hung out because my parents were awesome. Except when they all weren't there and they weren't mean to me. They weren't, bad to me. It's just my dad had no interest in me when my friends weren't around. He he was very focused on on himself. And 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 that's what he had to do to pay the bills. I understood that. It wasn't yeah. I, mean, I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it now. Uh he and I are closer now than perhaps we've ever been, despite the fact that he and I do not vote the same way. Uh but we don't talk about <laughs> That's the only reason yeah. they were able to have any relationship whatsoever. I grew up in construction and he's, he's an exceptional uh, builder. He can build anything and he never taught me. And so that's frustrating. I haven't really called him on it, but I grew up with a man who can cut down a tree and build a house with it. And, you know, I've done a bunch of construction here. Most of it was YouTube videos. I mean, I should have, he should have taught me that stuff. I was the gopher around the construction site, but he never taught me that stuff. So he had his challenges as a father, but I embraced it. I just, I never, like when you were talking about, you know, because of the way your dad was, maybe you would be, I never had those thoughts. It never occurred to me. It was like, well, I'm definitely not going to do that. So I was just, I mean, when, when I had the opportunity to, to rent an office that had two rooms, all I was thinking was, well, that's easy to run. I mean, well, I'll put an art desk right there and, and my old MacBook, I can put my old Mac right there and I can put all her, her shows on it. And, and, all, and there was these new programs you could give to kids so they could learn different stuff. And I put all those there and over here, I'll put all the stuff. Cause my grandmother, when I was growing up, my grandmother was a seamstress. So she had all, she had the little googly eyes and all that crap. And she would like, sometimes when I would stay there, she would have a pile of stuff and she would put it down and she would go make me some. And you got to mm. use it. And so she gave me my creativity. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I wasn't taking after dad. I was taking after grandma. 
And so I loved it. I mean, I loved every second of being a father. And I say it now, it, it, we haven't talked about this, but when, when, well, I mean, we did talk about it. When Mel moved back to Memphis, I lost, I, you know, I lost a lot of access to Izzy. So now my access went to, I would fly back once a month when money would allow. And then there was, you know, she would come out here on um, spring break. Both She has a spring break and a fall break. So she'd come here. Summer, she spends here, Christmas, Thanksgiving. But it's different than, you know, you getting up and you going in there and she's asleep and you rake the shirt up and you go <laughs> into her belly. You know, I yeah. can't do that now. Yeah. And, and make no mistake, she she complained, but she liked that. <laughs> on the belly. Uh, she does not like it at 14. <laughs> I don't think I've been allowed to do that since she was probably 11 or 12, uh, maybe 10 because she grew up fast, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I remember, um, I would post, I would post pictures of her all the time and I posted something and I had a, a website that's still out there in the world somewhere where I would say things that you can't get away with saying now, you know, I'd go take a meeting and refer to somebody who, who I met with in ways that you probably shouldn't do right now. But, um, I would post pictures of Izzy and I remember somebody commenting, why do you post so many pictures of your daughter in a skirt? And I was like, are you kidding me? Seriously? I don't understand <sighs> why there is, look, I, I, I don't understand why a father showing affection bothers so many men. It's a weird thing to me. It's not, yes, we all, we all understand that, uh, there are lines that you don't cross when it comes to that. Most most fathers never even think of those lines. But when you post a picture of you hugging your kid or kissing your kid, what is wrong with people that they think that's a problem? That I never understood. That's, that's part of why I'm doing this. You know, the other part of it is I didn't have much affection growing up as a kid. So I'm not an affectionate person, but my daughter brings it out of me and yeah. I can, I can understand. I never understood what it was like to be a father until I became a father. And now that I am a father, the, the, I've had dreams of her being taken away from me and yeah. how gut wrenching that just the thought is. And then to be able to live through something like that, I could only imagine how that could impact every facet of your life. Mm -hmm. and I'm assuming that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, and how old is your daughter? She's two. She's two. So, I mean, you are to a point with her where she talks, talking and walking and everything. She talks a lot. She is ahead of the program when it comes to words. Yes. That's great. And walking. She because doesn't know how to jump, but she really wants to jump. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I, it'll come. Uh, th that was the downside with Izzy. With Izzy, um, she's, still not, she's still not as coordinated. It was one of the things that for, with her, or maybe it was, didn't matter about the autism. I don't know, but she was never the most coordinated she was, uh, she, she could catch a ball like nobody's business, but everything else, she wasn't that, she wasn't that, like she, she couldn't, she never figured out the bike riding thing. Just, yeah. just couldn't do it. 
but uh and she was really slow to talk like i would take those i would take those trips to la like i can remember getting up at five o'clock in the morning driving to la for a meeting be about 10 minutes from from the location and getting a call that the meeting was canceled and then turn around and drive back five hours home and be on the phone with izzy and she's two or three years old and i can't understand a word she's saying she's just jabbering (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lily likes to go currently. Her big thing is yelling from the other room, daddy, where are ya? And just, but I'm not allowed to answer. Cause if I answer, she'll get upset. She just wants to yell that over and over again. Um, I want to tell you a story that kind of goes hand in hand with, uh, the experience of still working during the day, but not really having a home to go to at night and how that affects you on a physical and also an emotional level. I mentioned my best friend earlier. Mm-hmm. My best friend lost pretty much all of his family in 10 years. His father, his stepfather uh, got cancer and also um, fell back on his addiction and got really deep into heroin. When he found out he got cancer and didn't tell anyone until it was too late. His mom fell, died. Um, who She was like my second mom died three years ago. Suddenly his grandmother passed away. Like all these people in his family who were like my second family died. And he worked a lot as a graphic designer in Hollywood. He has, you mentioned the sparkly vampire girl where my best friend was the one who did all the twilight posters. <laughs> he was the guy who did the whole campaign. Um, a lot of FX's TV shows. He's the one that has done the artwork and he moved to Hawaii five years ago with his husband and their plan was to open a farm and they started a farm and they started growing coffee and the coffee was great. Like they got goats, they make goat cheese, like all this stuff. They decided to move to a farm and he was still going to do graphic design. Mm -hmm. They were about to start selling the coffee to some big restaurant chains in Los Angeles and a volcano erupted and their home got buried under 10 feet of lava and they barely got out alive. And this happened two years ago, about four months, five months before Lily was born. And I even started to go fund me to try to help raise money for them to rebuild. And it was one of those things where they were not leaving their property for the longest time not the longest time, however long the the lava flow was happening. I I was monitoring it and they kept giving me updates and their farm ended up being this place where um, FEMA set up a, a, I don't, a checkpoint, I guess people were getting rescued. Animals were getting rescued. And that was one of the places because it was so close to the ocean. And uh, up until very last minute, the lava flow was not projected to hit that area of the island in Pahoa in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand, when you live in Hawaii and there's a lava flow, pockets can just open up in the soil underneath you and lava can just fly out. Yeah. So I got this long text from Calvin basically saying goodbye to me and how much he's appreciated me as a friend because he didn't know if he was going to survive, which I mentioned earlier in this episode that I wouldn't be the guy I am today if it was if it wasn't for his influence in my life. And that cut right like that killed me. Now, turns out the lava flow shifted and was heading directly for their farm. And at like two o'clock in the morning, they got pounding on the door. They had 10 minutes to leave. 
And so they could hardly grab anything. And now their what was their farm is under 10 feet of, of dried up lava. And they ended up relocating and staying on the island of Hawaii, which I would not have done. Right. Uh, the big island, I mean. And um, I mentioned all of this because during that time, that was the first time I ever heard the name Tulsi Gabbard. And I heard that she had put forward the idea to expand Volcanoes National Park to the land that once was Calvin's farm to uh, bring in tourist money. So when they went back for the first time, there were helicopters of tourists flying overhead, uh, ogling where they used to live. And it was just like so heartless. But they also told me that so they had to stay with friends for a while and the impact of the displacement that that happened we didn't hear much about this in in you know LA or or anywhere else but this was talked a lot about in Hawaii mm-hmm. there were no the resources were spread so thin there was like i guess one insurance company that handled all of this and so many people were displaced that Calvin told me a story specifically about a family who were living out of their car because their house was destroyed and the dad getting up every morning and putting on the same suit because he still had to go to work and no one at his work knew what his situation was. And I think about that a lot too, because it, it, I guess it just sort of, I don't know if it's one of those scenarios where it's like appreciate what you have mm-hmm. um, no matter how low you think you are in the world. It could, it could all, you could always be lower. Yeah. Um, and I'm sharing that story because, you know, given that what you've gone through and what I believe a lot of people are currently worried about or possibly facing themselves do you have any words of wisdom now that you've come out on the other side i mean it's a there was a moment of silence (laughs) i um it's a tough one because for me i never it was horrible but i didn't hate it because I didn't think that would help, if that makes any sense. Uh, and I've been like that a lot of times. Like, like I'll get, I'll have my moments where I get frustrated at stuff. But to allow the situation to to just wallow in the situation, if that's the right term, to to be um, to be controlled by the situation, to be mentally uh, with your attitude, to allow my sleeping in the car or my, you know, laying there smelling my socks and, you know, opening the window and dropping them out beside the car and, and the next day having to, to change everything around so I can go do laundry because the dirty clothes that are in the car are starting to stink and get to a point where I'm doing laundry every couple of days because, you know, it's a hundred degrees in LA and, and your car is going to smell bad if you're living out of it. I mean, I didn't, I never, I never felt like I never just pitied myself. I never, Oh, woe is me. I I never did that. I I tried to, I tried to stay upbeat. I tried to stay focused on what was next. I'm not saying there weren't a few nights where I went and and bought a cheap bottle of rum and drank it all. 
because that did happen. Um, but I, I, I didn't, I tried to stay glass half full. I tried to look at the ways to make the lemonade out of the lemons I had. I, I had a MacBook Air and it had a long battery life. And so I'd charge it all day long. And then I'd, you know, after I worked out, took my shower, I was in the best shape of my life because I felt bad going to the gym and just taking a shower. So <laughs> I would go to the gym and I would work out at least 20 minutes. Most of the time I worked out for an hour I'm in the best shape of my life. And uh, so I had that going for me. And, uh, you know, and then I would go either do laundry or I would go find a place to chill. I would normally park at like a restaurant or somewhere lit when I was working on my computer because if you go where you're going to sleep and you work on your computer, you're basically your whole cabin is, is glowing. So anybody yeah. drives by will see you there. Um, I never, the thing is now is different. The world was not, the world was not a shitstorm then. Things were okay. Things were, I had just fallen on hard times. It was still, and by the way, I didn't have to, if I, maybe it was my ego Maybe it was my uh, my embarrassment. I could have reached out to friends. Um, uh, Jamie and Kyle, Jamie King, Kyle Newman had both said, you could have stayed here. Uh, Patrick would have let me stay in his house. He wasn't staying there. He was he was off shooting a movie. I could have stayed there. Um, you know, I could have stayed with a, you know, dozens of people. Is, is that is that is that pride? I mean, I've, I keep asking myself it was. I don't think it was. I just didn't want others to worry. I had got myself into this position. I'd get myself out. I got didn't, it, yeah. Like, for instance, I, I didn't want Patrick to be distracted by my situation because he had the opportunity of a lifetime. He was doing, I mean, who didn't want to do a Terminator movie? Right, in yeah. And so I didn't want to be the guy that, that distracted him. Cause I, cause I, I, I can remember one time being, uh, being, having a job and something horrible happened. Someone dumped something horrible on top of me and it was so distracting. I lost the job. Yeah. And I just never wanted to be that person. Uh, I never wanted to do that, but I had then, but because, you know, I'm, I, I try to be the person who who looks at myself, just like you were saying earlier, when you, when you have failed relationship after failed relationship, at some point you got to go, okay, maybe it's a little right. bit. And yeah. so I, you know, I, I, I was in that position, but now it's different. And so, I mean, there are so many people facing that and some people already in it today. We, we dropped a ton of uh, clothes off at, at uh, I don't know, I don't remember if it was Goodwill or Salvation Army, one of, the, one of those places. And as we were walking in, a guy comes up with a shopping cart, clearly homeless. And he says, hey, uh, you, you, got, you got any blankets in there? And it occurred to me, we're taking it into an establishment that is going to turn around and sell it for, you know, next to nothing. But he doesn't have that money to buy it. And so we stopped and we went, we didn't have any blankets, but I gave him all my old shoes that were in the bag. I gave him, we gave him some, some jackets and some sweaters. Um, and, you know, and I, I kept thinking to myself, I wanted to say, where are you going to be later? I'll go get you, I'll go get you a blanket. I'll go get you a blanket. I'll bring yeah, it back. Yeah. I mean, and this was a guy who was, he, he had been homeless for a while. He's, 
now you have people who are in my situation that they're working or they were working. They have a house payment. They have in LA is stupid. I mean, it's, you know, it's 2000, 4,000. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's nuts. It's crazy. And how do you, how do you do $600, $2,000? That means, I mean, the six hundred dollar sure. check you're talking about that we're all supposed sure. to get, yeah. yeah. I mean, sure, go ahead, send it. What, what are you going to do with that? Buy I mean, food? <laughs> Just like make a car I'm, payment, pay half of my rent? I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that works in Los Angeles. I I don't know. I but you know I don't know what to tell anyone other than try to stay positive and wear your mask and. I mean, I don't. We've never faced anything like that. And now we've got two or three other variants that are that are forming out of this. We've got one in the UK, we've got one in South Africa. And they're and they're they're much I don't even know if you even have heard about it yet, but Yeah, I have. So yeah. I mean apparently the vaccine still works against them, but you know, it's a different world right now. And right. I slept in my car when things were great. You know, the economy was bouncing back. I mean, everything was was getting better. And I was still sleeping in my car. I don't know what we're going to do now. What's happening right now? The the res- results from this, I think, are going to make my sleeping in the car minuscule. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't. I talked to a friend of mine today. He is he is my closest friend who who has had it, had COVID, and. I didn't know he had it. I didn't reach out to him because it was the holidays and, you know, I was giving him, I know he'd been working real hard and wanted him to, didn't want to bug him over the holidays. And he had, he fought it for three weeks and said, it's the worst thing he's ever had. He said, this is nothing like the flu. He said, I, 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 I kept thinking, you know, he, he, anyway, that's his story to tell, but you know, uh, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think my advice doesn't work because my advice to myself was to stay positive. I don't know. I get what you're saying. Yeah, no, I know. But there's, I feel like your vice, your advice, that, that way of thinking, I think does help just in a lot of day to day situations. You know, Uh, I have a tendency of, of making, what a mountain out of a molehill about everything. And, and yeah. I know that I have friends who have had fallen into really, really, really deep depressions this past year. And a lot of it has been exacerbated by all the time they spend by themselves and the news and the lack of work. So I do think mindset, you know, my wife meditates on a daily basis. She's taken up meditation and I am too, <laughs> I'm too anxious and OCD to meditate. I've tried. And then I end up focusing too much on the steps and it gives me anxiety. Yeah. Um, but there is something to that because situations can be dire, but certain emotional triggers or, or ways of thinking could always make it worse. So I yeah. think there's something to that. I, you know, I, I'm, I, I tend to be as, as negative and anxious of person as I am. I tend to be rather, uh, positive thinking. Like I tend to think that that I do think that we're going to get out of this and we're going to get better. And, 
as much as I am a doomsday prepper uh, at heart, I also feel like this isn't the end, but that's just because I'm, I'm kind of a hopeless romantic in the sense that, that, that I believe hope wins mm-hmm. uh, right now. It sucks. I mean, but then there's people like my mother-in-law who decided to fly to Florida cause she was lonely, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, uh, but anyways, I, I feel like I'm getting off topic with that too. And we have talked a lot, man. And this is what I talked about. This is what I told you. We go a little deep. I didn't mean to make you choke up a bit there, but I really do appreciate you telling me your story and sharing your experience with being a dad. And I never knew you didn't want to be because you seem like you enjoy it so much, you know, and, and I do too, even though it still freaks me out. I'm still freaked out. I still get these panic attacks when I know, oh, God, when Lily gets up from her nap, it's just her and me. Uh, I've been doing this for two years. It's nothing different. From my perspective, having watched your, I don't know what, we're friends on what, everything? Facebook, social, all social medias. But having seen your pictures and seen your, I would have never known that you had issues or struggled with insecurities or I mean, wouldn't have, because from my perspective, having gone through this, you would look like the exact dad that I am. It never occurred that, to me that, 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 that means that, 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 that means a lot. Thank you for saying but I, that. But, but um, it, is, it is a big deal. Cause I have friends who they don't post pictures of their kids. And, and I understand some people do it for privacy matters. They don't want their kids faces out. There, yeah. You know? But I mean, I would, I don't post as many now because at, at 14, she doesn't want right. pictures. Yeah. So it does. Look, my daughter, my daughter doesn't like it when I take pictures of her only because she wants to hold the phone and play with it. So yeah. like, it's really hard for me to get her to pose because she'll immediately be like, hold phone, hold phone, you know, well, we, <laughs> but, we went but yeah, to, uh, Mel and I took Izzy to, uh, we were, we were separated, but I took them as a family to Disneyland and we were in downtown Disney and there was a guy playing the, the fiddle. Well, if you're from Kentucky, it's fiddle, but it was playing the violin and he was pay- playing, you know. And so Izzy, I don't know, she was nine, eight or nine, walks out there and just starts twirling and twirling to the music. And so he, seeing this, comes up and starts basically, you know, playing to her. And people start gathering around and gathering around. And she's got, I mean, I think to be a to be a writer, you have to be a little bit. You have to have a big ego. And she's got that. She's got that performance thing that she likes. She likes to to have everyone watching and she's dancing and she's doing that thing. And then she became 14. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> now it's all brooding Funny. and dark and mysterious. Yeah. I went through that. And thankfully, I came out the other side. I went through that. That was a long thing. I mean, you didn't know me when I had dyed black hair and wore black lipstick and vinyl and was up until 5 a.m. every day, but well, there, there was a time. No, but um, I've seen the pictures. <laughs> you really haven't. There's not many. There might be two, but I've thank God. I've seen a couple of pictures where I was like, oh. Yeah, there were some headshots where I tried to represent what goth really was because I was tired of seeing gothic and punk kids as background actors on movies that really didn't get it because you know the costume department thought, we're going to put a fake nose ring in here and, you know, put you, like a colorful strand in the hair. Like, I don't know. Do you I ever still go get to auditions? Do you ever go to auditions or anything now? I, the last audition I had was 
probably a year ago or a year and a half ago. I have a manager and I have an agent. My agent just renewed my contract. And I'm like, all right, well, I have a commercial agent and a manager and the, my management company. They're great. I am the oldest person on their roster. They wow. represent children. So I don't think I'm with the right <laughs> management well, company, to I be mean, honest. You were, you were on VR troopers. I really was. And it's on Netflix, everyone. If you want to go see what I looked like when I was 18. Um, you, uh, I, you still get residuals, don't you? Uh, you VR Troopers was, was non-union. So oh, I did gone. not get residuals on that at all. Wow. It wasn't until... So VR Troopers got canceled. And the first job I booked that was union that actually made me join SAG. Because before VR Troopers, I did a little Caesar's Pizza commercial uh interesting story this is a long episode sorry everyone we're almost done uh when i was 17 years old i was in high school and a casting company was looking to cast an unknown person for a little caesar's pizza commercial and they auditioned hundreds of people and they showed up to my school they called me into the office it, principal's office it was first thing in the morning i was tired at that point i was already drinking coffee every morning and uh, they had me read the lines and i was super grumpy and I did it and I went back to class thinking nothing of it. And I booked the job and that was the first job I ever worked. And that made me that they Taft Hartley'd me on that. And so I was a must join. So right after when VR troopers was canceled, I went from the number one children's syndicated show in America to working at super crown books in Glendale, uh, making minimum wage, moved back in with my mom. Like, Oh, I was like, ah, I did not make it. Kids were coming into the bookstore <laughs> recognizing me as this person. Yeah. Um, but then I booked uh I was I booked an episode of I think it was a TV show called In the House with LL Cool J and Debbie Allen. And I had a scene with Debbie Allen, which was amazing. I played this pizza guy uh in an episode where she decided she was gonna take a job as a pizza delivery person to make extra money at night. And I, it was the first time I had ever shot anything in front of a live studio audience. Mm -hmm. And I remember we did it and she flubbed her line. And instead of, you know, calling cut, I just went with it and changed my line because my line was supposed to be a reaction to hers. So she was, uh, so I come in and I say pizza for Jackie Warren. I still remember the lines. And she said, you, her line was supposed to be, you got here fast. And then my line was supposed to be, well, that's our motto. We get here fast. But instead, she said, you sure did get here fast. And so I just changed it to that's our motto. We sure do get there fast. And like big laugh, whatever. And we talk about how much money I make in tips and all. And I leave. And afterwards, she came up to me. She's like, did someone tell you to do that? And I said, no, you, you changed the line. So I changed mine. She's like, you're a smart actor. And I held that <laughs> for the longest time, man, Debbie Allen. Um, but yeah, that's what got me into SAG. And then I did a few episodes of Saved by the Bell, the new class where I played a nerd on that. And then I did an episode of ER where I played a nerd on that. And then I was cast, um, as a recurring character on General Hospital, a nerdy lawyer. And because I was too funny, they wrote out the character after one episode. And then I played Charlize Theron's nerdy boyfriend in a Japanese Honda commercial. And at that same time, I became the spokesperson 
for Burger King in Germany. And yeah, I was nerdy. And uh, then um, things changed in the industry. It uh, was around 2008. The economy started tanking. SAG went on strike. Then my agent died and I had just gotten out of therapy and I started getting healthy. <laughs> and suddenly I wasn't 140 pounds, you know, all this. Why are we looking nerdy guys? I started looking like a guy and I stopped really booking work. And that's roughly when I decided to start writing. And yeah. I started writing for Icons of Fright. And that's what introduced me to the horror crowd. And that's when I met you. And it was writing for Icons of Fright, a horror website that opened up this possibility in my head that, oh, shit, you know, maybe I can actually write about movies and TV shows and get paid for it. And here I am 10 years later, I've written for The Washington Post and I have something going up uh, this weekend at the San Francisco uh, Chronicle. And it's crazy that I've gotten to this point and, you know, I'm still in SAG and I still have an agent, but I don't. And I think it's partially because I don't have the right representation and all my clips are old, but I don't, uh, I don't get the same types of auditions and I don't have the same type of excitement behind me. Right. Well, but, how was it uh, doing all those nude scenes? Oh, it was great. Yeah. It, it was uh, really fulfilling. Um, I, like I think that's one of the reasons why my wife decided to go out with me. Well, there you go. Everyone listening is like nude scenes. Wait, uh, <laughs> what? Which commercial was that? <laughs> oh, it was the was uh, uncensored. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I tell you, man, I have copies of some Burger King tray liners. I was on like I was on posters and trays yeah. and I had a sidekick and we were all about <laughs> it was a whopper time. That was what we said in the commercial. Whopper. We did. We did a commercial with Cindy Crawford. And we just ogled her the entire time. It's German, man. So like, I'm going to say this and then we have to end the episode because this has gone long. Looking back on it, I did those commercials in 2003. I had black hair, straight black hair. I was skinny. I was pale. I fit the bill of especially what Europe, I had the European aesthetic down. I looked like a young Jerry Lewis. And um, I looked at the, I still have the tray liners. They're, <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there's something that one of the, it's, it was all in German, but one of them was something about, um, delicious buns <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about burgers, yeah. but the tray liner are just two really tanned women in bikini bottoms. And we're, we're like in the bottom, they, they like superimposed us into the bottom of the photo, like pointing at that, talking about the delicious buns on the burger, but we're just looking at two almost naked women <laughs> and this is Burger King in Germany. So, I mean, the aesthetic there was a little different, well, you know, it's European. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, no, I still have an agent and I got, I mean, I'm set up to do self tapes here, but who knows when that'll happen. And then I decided to cut my hair yesterday and the clippers I got went a little bit shorter than I planned. So I don't even look like my headshot, but you Dude. know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, then. Look at that. Look at all this. Wow. I mean, your no one is seeing this. No, 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 they can't see it. They can't they see it. Want. But uh, if you, uh, if you want, I can bring you some clippers. I'll get there eventually. You know what? You look like a fryer. Now you look like a, like a, like a, <laughs> Or maybe even like a weathered knight. You you kind of look like you have chain mail. I mean, but yeah, I don't look like Stone Cold anymore because I got too much Santa Claus going on. That's true. Todd. Santa Claus were bald. Could, 
probably talk to you all night, but I don't think the listeners want to hear us rambling. But like, seriously, no, the, th the three listeners left to like four hours ago. Yeah. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for agreeing to come on uh, and do this my with pleasure. me. This means a lot, especially what you've gone through and the, the path I'm currently on. Um, this is the point in the episode where we start wrapping up. So I don't even know what's going on with you, but if you want, can you tell people where to find you online? And if you have anything currently going on, you want to pimp? I, I hate using the term pimp promote. Let's say promote. I, uh, yeah, I've got tons of, tons of crap out there. Nobody's interested in that. Uh, you can find, if you want to see me bitch about Trump, uh, it's Todd underscore farmer on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm probably going to nuke Facebook eventually. Yeah. Soon, probably, uh, in January, but if uh, it wasn't for family members keeping in touch with me, I would not use Facebook. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, Facebook's probably on the way out. I, um, I mean, look, I've been, I've been very, through all of this, I wrote three screenplays. I finished my first novel. Um, I saw your post, you bragger. I know. And I, I, I built this nice pergola, which you can't see. And I mean, I, I, I made the best of it. I think. Yeah. I'm lucky because I have a yard. Yeah. Uh, we call it a garden cause she's Irish, but, uh, but I mean, I can't imagine, you know, I, I feel horrible for people who are in an apartment. How well, thank you. you. It sucks. It How does. You, you know, to we got Lily a scooter for Christmas and a helmet, and she loves pushing it around. What's great but, for her? What do you do? Well, you can't ride it. I, right? No, I'm in my bed. I'm in the bedroom right now recording this. This is the I only space I have because I see the pillow. you know. My wife has a recording booth because she does uh, voiceover stuff and audiobooks, but like. We don't really have anywhere to go to have alone time away from each other. And also part of town are you guys in? Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks, okay. And uh my daughter was like, I hear hear kids want to go see kids. But as soon as she goes outside, she doesn't know how to interact with them. And the kids in my building are fucking assholes and I don't want her interacting with them. Right. So it's been like there's this also this concern that we're raising a girl that doesn't that isn't going to develop social skills, yeah, yeah. you know. But I mean, there's a lesser of two evils, I suppose, you know, but anyhow, that is a totally other thing I could talk about forever in another episode, which we will probably do. Cause we touched on that in the episode Devin Sawa was on and it's definitely a concern. I think a lot of parents are dealing with right now during uh, the stay at home orders. And here in LA, we just had ours extended again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who knows, but I still take my daughter to dance class, which is a whole other weird situation. Yeah. Those are all other things to talk about on another episode, but uh, this episode is starting to come to a close. So get ready. Here's my shtick about, about the show again. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. If you want, I'm at Aaron flux. I'm Aaron W pruner on Instagram dadward spiral on twitter again i'm bad at updating but follow me uh dadward spiral also on facebook which i do try to promote and encourage people to comment and start engage in the conversations that that arise from whatever episode you're listening to um thanks again to dragon wagon radio you can find them on twitter or go to dragonwagonradio.com we have merch 
buy the merch. I don't even know if I'd make any money off of that, but it's just cool to see the illustration of a cartoon version of me falling inside the silhouette of my daughter. Um, it would also be weird if I went out in public and saw someone one, <laughs> someone wearing that as a COVID-19 mask. But, you know, the 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 shirts and coffee mugs look really cool. And I'm thankful that uh, my best friend was able to do that for me. Um, look, if you like the show and you're listening to us on, you know, there's all sorts of platforms the show is available on. But if you're listening to us and you like what you hear, please give us a, a like and review on iTunes that helps our visibility and gets more people to discover the show. And I'm really trying with this thing to promote the idea of dads actually talking about their problems and concerns and not just doing the whole surface thing of uh, bonding over sports and whatever other stereotypical cliche thing dads are supposed to do that I don't do. And Todd plays D and D and has a bunch of power tools behind him. So like, you know, and uh, so, so it's possible. Um, I want to thank you all for bearing with me on my rambling and listening to this episode that I really enjoyed recording. And I hope Todd enjoyed recording as well. And the next episode, Eddie will be back. I don't know who will be uh, joining us, but it should be someone pretty cool. I don't know if they're going to be cooler than Todd, but we got some cool guests lined up. Here's hoping 2021 is going to be a fruitful year. And until next time, just remember, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Internet! Breaking news. Comic books are now more popular than sports. That's right, we're now the jocks. I'm Koi Jandro. I am a comic book aficionado expert and overreader. I'm reading over 100 comics a week, and I have a show called Koi Cast where we break down everything about comics, be it movies, TV, and the funny books themselves while scouring the news for more comic news. I want to share that news with yous. Tune in to Koi Cast every single week at KoiCast.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Dragon Wagon.